Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Today we are sitting down and having a chat with Sanjay Kushu. Sanjay is the Group Financial Controller of Telstra and a passionate mentor who believes strongly in active leadership. I've had the pleasure of working with Sanjay and experienced firsthand the quality leadership he portrays. I've also been the beneficiary of his trusted counsel and advice on many occasions. It was no surprise the amount of interest I received from listeners recommending getting Sanjay on the show. So please enjoy. Okay, hi everyone. I've got Sanjay Kushu with me here. We're at uh, Telstra headquarters. And when I started this podcast, or before I started this podcast, I actually sent out a survey asking people, should I do it? One, and the answer was yes. And the se- one of the other questions was, you know, who should I get on the show? And Sanjay's name came up many, many times. So that was the pressure I needed to get him on the show. <laughs> In fact, no, he was very open to coming on the show. So Sanjay, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. My pleasure. So for those that don't have the pleasure of being involved with you before or uh, working with you before and knowing your story, do you want to share with the widener listenership, you know, who you are and what you're doing and that sort of stuff? Sure. David, I started, I'm, my, my background, I've got an Indian heritage. So I was born in India and uh, grew up there. So it's kind of, I finished my professional studies in India. So basically spent all of my growing initial years in India and then went to Which work part? Uh, in Delhi, New okay. Delhi in India. So back then, India was kind of a different place from what we know about it today. You know, it was uh, the opportunities were limited and uh, typically, you know, people who had career aspirations would kind of look for jobs overseas and opportunities outside of India. So that took me into the Middle East with uh, one of the big four firms. And I lived in a country called Bahrain, which is a small country next door to Saudi Arabia, working with a big four firm. Spent about four and a half years there. And then, of course, if you want to further your career even more, then Middle East is probably not the place to be spending the rest of your career. So uh, we migrated to Australia back in 1996. And given my experience with Ernst & Young, which is the big four firm I went to work with in the Middle East. I came and worked for them over here in in Melbourne for quite a number of years and then went and worked with Deloitte for a few years. So by which time... What was it like working in the big four? Because I always see... So big four is one of the big accounting houses, but what is it like? Because I always see in when I'm looking for roles and that sort of stuff, you know, people want big four experience, especially if it's a financial controller or a CFO type role. So what sort of training and stuff are they doing differently? Why do people want someone from that background so much? There, and, and I can I can say that from experience, Dave, and, and, and if I can con- just kind of conclude on my journey so and then come back to your question. Sure. So I worked with EY Deloitte, by which time I was kind of ready and to be a partner in the big four industry and around that time i kind of moved to telstra which is called the industry in professional services so it's the firm and the industry so and then of course i've been in telstra for nine years now i've seen both sides of it now coming back to your question in retrospect i think the way i would describe it is that there is there is a lot of discipline 
and structured way of operating in the big four firms. Working hard and being result-oriented is kind of embedded in the professional services firm because for them, time is money. So therefore, I mean, that's what they sell, basically. So therefore, there is, there is a very high degree of focus on how efficient you are and you know, how you go about quickly understanding your clients' processes, etc. So, so there's a certain discipline that comes with professional services, and those are the skills that uh, I, I learned over there. Now, if I contrast that and what I learned outside of professional services in, in, in Telstra is the hardcore application of accounting theory into practice. Right. And in some ways, that's quite different because it's it's kind of easier to be a consultant and say, you know, yes, I, I my opinion is that you're materially correct. And that's something you do, you know, once a year as an auditor, which is which is what I was practicing. But it's quite different to actually have live in the business, provide an advice internally in the business every day, and for the business to go and make decisions based on your advice, and to be able to face up to them next week if your advice was wrong, yeah, and they made the wrong decision. So therefore, you're not going away anywhere, and you know, you know, you're not turning up once a year yeah. to provide an opinion. You were there next week, and something's gone wrong, and you had to face the consequences. So therefore. The rigor of accounting rules and standards and, and how you apply accounting theory is very real on, on this side of the industry. So, so I've now done nine years in Telstra, and you asked me what my career journey has been. As I just touched on, it was a variety of experiences. So I learned the, the discipline, uh, the presentation skills, how to concisely present your findings and your observations to an audit committee of the board are all the skills that I learned in professional services. But I've got some drilling yeah, going on right but, on cue. But to then deeply apply that in practice is what I learned in Telstra. So I, I started in Telstra. So by the time, as I said, uh, I'd finished up with the big four uh, and at that time, and I'll tell you the reasons why I made the change, but I came in and joined Telstra as uh, general manager of investment accounting. So that's consolidations, M&A, corporate restructures, etc. And then... So that was quite progressed in your career when you've made that transition because it's often that big four, you either make partner or you you know move out and it's a question of when you're going to move out to industry. Is that a good summation or why? Uh... That's absolutely how the industry runs, Dave, and... You know, on day one, if if there's 20 graduates, then the environment is such that uh, you're effectively told that two out of the 20, only two out of all of you will make partner. So therefore, for the rest of the 18, you know, it's about, okay, so at what point do I make a career change? And uh, so therefore, you run the race for as long as you can. And, yep. and when you get clarity about your future, and then, of course, in the meantime, your aspirations change and, you know, five out of the 20 or, or X number would feel that that's not for them to be a partner in a big four firm. So therefore, you know, that's when the career change happens. But you seem to have done made partner. So you're in the top 5% in my mass is correct. So you're obviously doing something different to the other 19, 18 grads that year. And but that now you've made the transition. So you've I, I was, Dave, and, and what was driving my decision was a sense, uh, and, and when I did come to that point where 
partnership was a real opportunity and it was effectively on the table. It did mean some relocation and and disruption to to my personal life and my family and the kids, etc. And that prompted me to kind of reflect on what it is that I was chasing for many, many years and whether I was prepared to kind of give it yeah. more time for conditions to be in my favor in terms of you know geographical location, etc. And that was a moment of reflection. And the answer I got to, and I really asked myself the question as to what it is that I've been chasing and what do I need to prove to whom? And the answer I got was that I was effectively uh, competing against myself, really. <laughs> so wow. I yeah. had I had nothing to prove to anyone by that time in my career. I realized that there was nothing I had to prove to anyone. It was only myself that I had to prove something to. And on that day, I could actually tick that box and say, yes, I pursued a career in professional services. I've gotten to this point, and there is nothing beyond this that I need to prove to myself. And therefore, what is it that I really now want to do in my career? And the other point of reflection was that whilst professional services seems like or or is a, is heavily reliant on, on team performance, but at the core, it's an individual sport because everyone's trying to become partner or mo- most of them are trying to right. become partner. Yeah. So when you bring it down to that level, it is very personal and it's a very individual sport. And there was a sense of fatigue of, you know, running the race solo and, and trying to further your career because you, you don't, it's not a group of individuals that becomes partners. It's an individual that becomes a partner. Yeah. So therefore it's a solo race. Yeah. And I had kind of, uh, I had moved on from there and I had had enough of that. And I was really interested in building high performing teams. So it was no longer about me individually, but about how we collectively become famous. And when I then started in Telstra, I was totally focused on how famous my team could become and how successful they could become in Telstra. And that's what I focused on. And my reflection and and my aspiration was to be leading a high-performing team as opposed to being a brilliant individual who was operating or managing a team. So I didn't want personal glory at that point, and I thought that we want to become famous collectively. So from a momentum perspective, how would you compare, you know, when you're kind of competing against yourself, which you couldn't pick tougher competitor, versus sort of doing something for someone else and so from a momentum perspective are you did you have a sense of higher purpose when it wasn't just for you or for your own cause or yeah it was it wasn't a higher purpose but i think the styles there was a transition in style so for example in an individual sport you know you write a piece of thought leadership or or whatever and mm-hmm. a piece of output and you invariably read your own stuff through someone else's eyes or you hear your own speech through someone else's ears and that's an individual trait that kind of suggests that you're kind of individual you're after individual glory the transition was how can i teach how can i make my team as good as i am and that's my obligation so that someone in my team should be able to write something as good as i could write or think as well as I could think. So that was kind of my obligation. I started to focus on my team and how I could develop them, teach them all the things I knew. And then at that point, you wonder, well, okay, so what's your relevance? You know, why, why would I lead those people? Once I've taught them everything, 
what more can I offer? So it's a it's a dual it's a dual carriage thing, you know, where I would teach I would teach my teams all the things I knew, but at the same time I had an obligation towards myself to learn more so that I could continue to lead them and teach them newer and more things. So there was a change in style, a thinking and operating style as opposed to the pace. The pace never the pace never changed. Yeah. You know, professional services is famous for uh, long hours, etc. But uh, I never there was there was never any any change from right. that point of view. You know, even even at Telstra, I kind of work very very long hours and yep. long weeks. Uh, I'd agree with that. I've seen you here at uh, year end when you're trying to close the books, and it's so so. It's never that's never yeah. been there's never been any change in that regard. So, what advice would you have? I guess for your former self, Sanjay, or someone that's looking to follow a similar career path as yourself. Dave, when I when I one of the things that has been very very central to to my style and my success, and that's a relative term. I, I wouldn't say I'm very very successful, but um, you can only look very back and, and and measure from where you started. So therefore, it's it's all relative. My my advice, Dave, would be that we should not get overwhelmed by big things, big projects, big process, big company. Anything that's big and complex is is made up of many number of small things. So therefore, we need to develop the skill to cut through complexity and, and state the problem in, in very simple terms. So break it down to a point where the problem's right there in front of you and it's a very simple problem and, and break it down to that level and then start to solve that small problem. And and the more you do, you will find that the big problem starts to break up, and you know you're starting to make cut through. Right. From a career perspective, uh, I have always been well prepared. I have very seldom in my career tried to wing through a meeting or right. an event or whatever. So I mean, what do you is, do to? Well, you you pay a personal price for it. So this might this might seem odd, but um, I have never I have now attended. Uh, I don't know, 30 Telstra board meetings and since since I've been in this role and uh, started at 10 board meetings, I'm very familiar with the process, I'm very familiar with the issues and it's generally on a Monday and I'm always here on Sunday mornings preparing for it, even though I'm very, very familiar with what's going to happen on Monday. So so the, the personal price that you pay for it is is to put in the effort and this would be my advice, be prepared for whatever you're participating in. And if not, then it shows. There are people who are gifted, who are very sharp, pick up things very, very quickly, but anyone who's got an average intellect or average kind of uh, IQ, I would suggest would need to supplement to be be very effective in in a situation, in a meeting, in a a problem-solving session. Anyone that's average would really benefit from preparing for that event. And if it means person paying a personal price for it, well, you know, that's that's kind of yep. what you invest in your career. So what type of things are you doing on the Sunday to, you know, make help you be prepared for the board meetings? Well, I go through all the material, I get my thoughts together. One of the things I almost constantly do is to preempt the next question. So I put myself in the shoes of my stakeholder and say, Well, if this is what I'm gonna say this is if this is what I'm going to write and they read it, if this is my conclusion on something, my observation on something, if I were in their shoes, 
what would be the next logical question they would ask me and I prepare for that. So, and in order to do that, you need to actually develop a sense of what would I do if I was faced with this, if I had this information in front of me, if I was faced with the situation, what would I do? What, what would I ask? What would I want to know? So therefore be, be preemptive and prepare yourself for that next question. And I find that the hit rate on that is quite high because some of those follow-up questions and, and the next piece of information is quite logical. Mm-hmm. And it's only because you hadn't thought through it that you could not anticipate yep. it. But, they, but they're all very logical next questions. Right, okay. Well, that's kind of a good segue into uh, habits, I guess. You know, so if, do you want to share a habit or habits with the listenership that you think of, well, including that one, on top of that one, that maybe you're practicing some frequency daily or weekly that you think's helped with your success? Dave, I'll share two habits. One is one is that of reflection and every morning when I drive into work and every night when I'm driving back home, my brain's like a radar, so I'm kind of I'm scanning for risk and I'm, I'm, I'm replaying the events of the day. And I scan for risk and I scan for things that could go wrong. So things always remain fresh in my mind. Uh, I don't need someone to remind me on an email that something's coming up or, or whatever. I kind of keep refreshing my risk register, if I can call yeah. it that. The other habit I have is to actually visualize what the future state will be. So so whatever that it is that I'm engaged in, you know, whether it's a project or whether it's some kind of accounting problem or, or whatever it might be, I try to put myself into the future and say, well, where am I going to be? In what situation am I going to find myself? Or what will this project look like? Or what will this organization be able to say about this two weeks, two years from now? So I kind of visualize the headline. And I, and I use this with my teams if you're engaged in something. And I say, well, if the Fin Review was to write an article a year from now, what would they be writing? And that kind of gives me a sense of what I need to solve for, what I need to do to be able to meet that headline. So I always put myself in the future. Now, also to give you a little bit of downside of that, but, but that's a habit I, I, I constantly apply yep. to see, to find myself and visualize myself in the future and then back solve for all so of the things that could go wrong. And is this in the car or is this something you sort of no, this get is, to? No, this is all the time. So whatever I'm doing, I kind of, I think of myself in the future and then I, I solve for yep. the things that could go wrong. The downside of that is, and you've got to be careful about that, that you don't constantly live in the future because yeah. you, you, you <laughs> got, right. because if, you, if, if, I'm, if I'm always put myself in, you know, two weeks, two years out, mm. then what is my today looking like and, and how do I enjoy today? Right. So therefore, you've got to keep reminding yourself that you can't always live in the future and solve for the future and, and, and forget about today. So that's, that's a balancing act you, you, need, you need to be able to perform. So, just before I move to the next question, was there any other? I can see, or uh, you've got another one in there, another habit or advice. I do, Dave, and my advice is, and and this is from experience for younger people, is to find good mentors. In my career, I found myself in a situation very early in my career where I was kind of struggling a little bit professionally, and at that point, I picked 
a couple of people in my organization who I thought would be great mentors. Now, they weren't the coolest people in the firm, but I could see that they're the most knowledgeable people that, that, that I could find. And I approached them and I kind of asked them whether they would be happy to mentor me. And this was, this was heavy mentoring. This was like nuts and bolts of the business. Right. And I absolutely soaked up everything that they taught me. And um, how, how did, so how did you get into such a structured mentoring process? Is this something that's encouraged by the big four and supported through, like when you say no, heavy was, mentoring session? What this was mean? totally This was totally unstructured in the sense that I just approached the guys and said, yep. look, I need help. I want to learn from you. Can you try and take me to your clients, you know, as much as possible? So this was total, totally personal as opposed yep. to a structured program. Now, I think if I, if I talk about structures and programs and frameworks, etc., I think they're overrated. A lot of good results can be achieved outside of frameworks and outside of structured programs. And people are generally willing to help. Yep. I have never said no to anyone that's approached me for a piece of advice or, you know, career help, etc. Generally, people are always willing to help. Yep. Now, if you wait for a framework to emerge or an HR mandate yeah. right. for a mentoring program, and if that doesn't come about, then you kind of freeze up and you say, well, okay, so what am I going to do now? There is no framework for mentoring. Well, you don't need a framework. You need to simply approach someone and say, I want to learn from you. Yeah. And nine out of 10 people would, would be willing to help. So take those personal initiatives mm. to find good mentors and learn from them and totally commit to, to, to that relationship. Okay, so it sounds like you've, you've developed a real self-awareness, Sanjay, over these years. Do you want to talk through how important that is? Dave, it's very important to be self-aware. And, and my sense of self-awareness, I would rate quite highly. The question then is, well, what do you do with that awareness? And there are many theories about this, right? So, you know, people will do their SWOT analysis and plot themselves on a pie chart in the four quadrants. And then the question is, what do you, what do, you do about it? Uh, my personal philosophy and what I practice is that if I had, and let's say I, I and I am very self-aware, so I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. Now, the question is, if I have 100 units of energy, what would I do with 100 units of energy? You know, so one model in someone's view might be, well, put 80 units of energy into your weaknesses to kind of balance it out a little bit and reduce your weaknesses. My philosophy is, well, what's, what's the ROI on, on the 100 units? If I put 80 units into my weaknesses and try and balance it out a little bit, I might get, you know, a 10% uplift in my performance. But if I put 80 units of energy into my strengths, I might get double ROI. Or triple ROI. So the question is, how obsessed do you get about mitigating your weaknesses at the cost of giving up the opportunity on further strengthening yourselves in, in your area of strength? So I am who I am. I think people around me have gotten used to who I am, and I have a certain operating style. I have a certain way of speaking and engaging with people, and I do have very strong relationships. And I do have a very straight up style. So I don't let that worry me too much because people know who I am and, and I am who I am. So therefore, I don't get distracted too much about my weaknesses, or yep. what I call weaknesses. I'll focus on my strengths. 
Got it. That's a uh, great way to look at it, the energy and just having a capped level of, you know, this energy which you can allocate out. So it's an interesting way to look at it. But, yeah, so, so saying about the weaknesses, you're obviously aware of what they are, but you're consciously deciding where to focus your energy and where to, yeah, for an ROA. So it's a very, it's almost like an accounting way to look at what's the return on your energy. So, so if, if if I spend 80 units on my weaknesses, that kind of becomes restrictive for me because my natural style is, you know, I, I put a lid on my natural style. And that has to affect the things that I do very well yeah. because I'm now acting unnaturally unless I practice and invest the 80 units on a sustainable basis for a long period of time so that then that becomes my natural style. Yeah. But until that happens, I'm actually acting and behaving unnaturally and that has to impact my the things that Absolutely. I do very well. Okay. So thanks for that, Sanjay. It's like you've pulled a rabbit out of a hat with ROI on energy. Just before we move to some of the structured questions, do you want to tell us what your thoughts are around networking? Networking is very important, Dave, and I have found networks and relationships very valuable. But I do advise my younger colleagues and people who are new to the organization and, and the new generation about how networks can become powerful and the distinction between what I call, you know, hollow networks and rich networks. I mean, if, if I've got 500 contacts on LinkedIn, well, if I don't benefit from those relationships, then they kind of be a statistic, you know, and, and yeah, kind of hollow. So, so my advice to, to younger professionals is network with the objective of learning something from those network contacts. Let your speak, let your work speak for itself. And and this is the advice. So, so if we have new graduates and, you know, I, I go and talk to them and in about half an hour, I got five LinkedIn invitations. Right. And my advice to them is I don't even know you now. If you think that, you know, maybe being a contact on your LinkedIn is important, that's fine. That's up to you. But I will know you when you work, when you get famous because of what you do. And then you don't have to approach me. I will approach you. I will find you. So so networking for the sake of networking, to me, is kind of just a waste of time. Yeah. So use your networks effectively. Develop those relationships with the objective of learning something from those network contacts, learning about their business, what they're engaged in, what their issues are, how they solve problems that you can bring back to your career and your organization. So use those networks effectively as opposed to just a piece of statistic. Okay, thanks, Sanjay. Just, um, I'll just throw it out there. Was there any, because I'm just kind of, I don't want to cut you off or anything, but was there any other ones before we just move into more structured, mentalist, repetitive questions? No, the only other thing I would say is just believe in yourself, be confident, and I think most of our actions and outcomes are driven by the baggage we carry on ourselves in terms of consequences of what we do. You know, these are kind of manifestations of the mind. Yeah. So I'm writing a piece of report, I'm doing a piece of project or whatever, and then what weighs on your mind is how you're going to look at the end what people are going to perceive about you and your competence at the end of it. And these are all personal baggages we carry in our careers. So at some point in my career, I actually took the baggage off and, you know, I don't let that come in the way of what I do. So I do 
the so what analysis every now and then, you know, in our in our profession. We're not brain surgeons, we're not surgeons, we no one's gonna die because of what we do. So we have to solve business problems, we have to improve our organizations, but we can do that without any personal baggage and the fear of consequences. Once you take the fear out, it actually is is very empowering and you know, you you're very free and you're very innovative and you're very bold in how you go about improving businesses and processes and developing people, etc. So my advice would be separate those or, or reduce those kind of voices in your mind that are internal to you and let that not interfere with what you have to do. So when you're saying take the fear out or separate or reduce it is this the fear of failure or being seen as a failure absolutely i think i think at the core i mean that's what that's what drives that sense of fear you know that you perceived as is not effective as a failure etc i mean the way i look at it is that if i have i i need effectively three things to be satisfied that i have given something just about whatever i had which is a my commitment b my time and c my intellect if I have reasonable intellect, I've given it my full commitment and I've given it all the time I had yeah. or have, I should not fear consequence yeah. because I give it my best. Now, if having put all of that into play, if I still fail, then one of these things must not be yeah. sufficient. If it's intellect that's not sufficient, then I go and work on it. I educate myself. I learn from someone and try and get my intellect up. Or I didn't have sufficient commitment. Well, let me face into that, that I was really not committed towards success. And thirdly, I may not have given it all my time or all the time it needed. That's a personal choice I made. So therefore, I should face into that. So therefore, if your end goal is to be successful, then you cannot compromise on a commitment and the effort you put in. And if it's intellect, well, that's inherent, but of course can be developed. So therefore, that's an action point for you. Now, when, so in my personal case, I've got, I've got these three things always in my mind. And beyond this, there is really nothing else I can do. And the consequence is the consequence. And it doesn't sound like you're stopping if those three aren't met. You're actually looking at it and you're rebalancing so yeah and they say failures when you stop but uh, you're just learning from it and having another crack fantastic okay so this is sort of the part where i ask for a, for a quote but uh, i'd like to with your permission if i could go back through because i've probably heard about six or seven which i'd like to quote you on on the website so if that's okay i'll uh, take that liberty the second one was around a book so you know i'm trying to promote through the show reading and if you promote one book then it's obviously something that's important to you so do you have one that you can think of that you'd recommend i did read a book some time ago dave about frank lowey which was frank lowey's autobiography frank lowey being chairman of the westfield group and this is his story about coming out of europe post-depression and making some very humble start in in sydney and from that point how he built the business that we know today is, is is a very large and successful business. So I like I like autobiographies. I like case studies. Uh, they're quite inspirational, and this one in particular, it, I found very inspirational. So that's yeah, great. Right. No, thanks for that, Frank Lowry. 
I'll link to that on, on the Mentalist website. Okay, so that sort of concludes the interview, Sanjay. Thank you very much on my behalf. I know the listeners are going to enjoy this because they asked to get you on the show. So, yeah, thanks very much. And just before we go, if people want a resonating with what you're saying, and they think, geez, I'd really love to contact you or sounds like a LinkedIn connection may not be the best way unless it's followed up by trying to learn something. <laughs> but uh, how do they go about that? That's not an issue at all, Dave. My, uh, my time is under pressure, but at the same time, I because I have personally benefited from these mentoring relationships, I'm very happy to have a coffee with one of your listeners or a quick chat. So... I always make time for that. They could write an email to me and I'd be very happy to find some time to help your listeners. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I'll let you get on with what will be probably another busy day. It's Tuesday here and um, I'm sure you've got a million emails just in this last sort of 40 minutes. So thank (laughs) thank you you very much for your time. Good luck to your listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List. Mentor List.